The F Word at Work from Fertility Matters at Work is a conversation about fertility and how it affects people at work. You'll be hearing conversations from our community about what they experience when trying to build their families, as our aim is to help you better understand this issue by sharing these stories, along with our own insights from the work we are doing. Plus, we'll be talking to the organisations making these cultural changes the norm, as well as bringing you thought leaders from the workplace wellbeing space. As a solo parent, it's even more of a fear because you are going to become the sole provider for another person if your fertility journey results in you having a child. Going on a fertility journey is very expensive. Having a child is an unknown expense that you know people don't know how much it's going to cost. There is a big overwhelm when it comes to finances. Therefore, job security is absolutely critical for somebody who's going through this. So the last thing you want to do is put any idea into anyone's mind that you're not committed and you don't want to be passed over for a promotion. Like yeah. many, many of the people in my community are, are very career driven and still want to continue to do that. So we're very anxious about sharing this. Welcome back to another episode of The F Word at Work. Hopefully you're listening to this chronologically and this is part two of what is a three-part bumper episode. It was our D&I roundtable that we hosted on Zoom a couple of weeks ago in November um, to really highlight the many ways that fertility affects people. And I'm delighted to have, once again, my co-founder, Claire Ingle, with me. Becky was with me on the call. Claire couldn't be with, with us. If you heard the first one, you'll know that she said she was gutted. I, I feel really bad about it because <laughs> I know how gutted you were, but it was just annoyances with calendars. But like we said, we're going to do it again, aren't we? Yeah, we, we, we are. It's we, not the first time. It's, it's not, not the, the first time. It's not the last time. It's not the last. the last time we're going to do it. Now, we're going to be exploring alternative routes to parenthood. And um, the last part of the conversation, you're going to be hearing about the LGBTQ plus conversation. And I'm going to rejoin with Claire after you've had a listen, because Claire has been doing some incredible work supporting particularly IPs who are going through a surrogacy uh, journey. But we just want you to just have a think about this group of people and their route to parenthood, because it's certainly becoming more spoken about. It's becoming more usualized, isn't it, Claire? It's something that yeah. we like to use that word usualized rather than normalized, because why should it not be normal? Do you think that the shift is coming as quick as it needs to? Oh, gosh, no. Uh, in, a, in a word, no, I don't. I mean, you know, I've spoken to quite a few intended parents over the past couple of months and it's again the narratives really slow in catching up there doesn't seem to be that acknowledgement that you know legislation talks about adoption leave people still think adoption is actually adopting a child that isn't yours they, they don't view it as a route to parenthood via surrogacy so yeah I, I think that's even further back than the the female conversations that we have now, before we get into this episode, we just want to say a big thank you to our sponsors for this series, Apricity, which is next generation fertility. And Apricity has a unique virtual model that uses AI innovation and technology to reimagine fertility care. Now, to explain that, the technology Apricity use is through their virtual model. So they have virtual consultations and specifically their bespoke treatment app really guides and supports patients and their partners through their journey. So they never miss an injection. They have instant access to their medical team and a dedicated advisor seven days a week. Apricity offers family building benefits to employers, health plans and individual patients 
And this goes from diagnostic testing to full fertility management, including medical treatments such as IVF, egg donation and egg freezing. Apricity helps build families by providing access to the best doctors, technology and unlimited support. Now, the Apricity Fertility Benefit can be bespoke, designed for your company, for either flexi benefit, cash allowance or through your PMI. And you can discover how Apricity can support your employees just by visiting apricity.life. We're looking at alternative paths to parenthood, and this is something that's, that's very close to my own heart, having needed to go through donor conception to have my children. We're going to discuss what employers need to know about being inclusive of the other less commonly known paths, um, such as solo parenthood, donor conception, adoption, and then after that, we'll move on to surrogacy. And I know my own path was donor conception. I learned that in itself, it was a difficult route to navigate and, and find support for. And I know that quite often when we think about fertility treatment, we think of IVF. Um, I want to welcome our two panelists who's gonna talk about their own experiences. We have Mel Johnson, who is a HR professional and the founder of The Stork and I, and Mel is the UK's first and only solo parenthood coach. And we also have Nicole Narricott, who is an adoptive parent and senior business change manager. And we're going to be talking about their own routes, but also how they can be applied to the workplace. So like I just said, the assumption is that we think about fertility treatment as IVF and predominantly it is. But that's normally people think about IVF with two people involved. And first, we want you to understand a little bit more about solo parenthood and get you to think about whether your workplace policy includes language and support for those who are embarking on this on their own. And that's where I want to come to you, Mel. And just talk about, can you just share with us what the challenges and the fears that someone might have in the workplace when they're embarking on a path to parenthood through a solo parent? Yeah, sure. So what other people have said really resonates. So I think you're dealing with all of that. But then on top of that, there's some nuances to doing this on your own. And I think as people have talked a little bit previously about shame. There is for some people who are becoming solo parents using a donor. Many people say that they feel shame that they haven't been able to go down a traditional route and are working through that. And therefore, great anxiety about what other people will think. So when you are sharing with your employer, if you want to share that you're going for fertility treatment, many people say they are met with almost astonishment, which is just an initial reaction from someone that they cut almost involuntary to say, but I thought you were single. Because everyone's assumption is that if you're having fertility treatment and if you're trying to have a baby that you have got a partner. So it's that physical reaction that you almost see from people when you share either that you have become pregnant using a donor when people around you know your circumstances and that you aren't in a relationship. Also, trying to understand if things are relevant for you. So there's so much assumption that if you are trying to conceive that you have a partner, that all, everything that I've currently seen, which is positive, it's heading in the right direction, the policies, they all assume that you're doing it with a partner. And it may sound like a really small thing, but the problem is it's on top of so many assumptions throughout the whole process. So it's just one one more thing where you feel oh this isn't really written for me it, it really throughout the whole journey often feels like you are trying to fit yourself into a process that's designed for heterosexual couples with the language with the terminology and with the assumptions that people presume 
And so it's just, yeah, trying to stop those assumptions and get understanding that there are many different circumstances that people might be following. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can be as simple as a line to say, if you have a partner, exactly. Applicable. I mean, yeah. we often we really try to be really careful around how we word things because we want people to feel that their experience is recognised and understood. And I, I do think the solo parenthood conversation is probably one that hasn't been had as much. And, and actually, you're combining all of those other fears around speaking about it and actually saying, I'm going down this path on my own and how will they react? Along with the other typical fears that we hear from people who are you're almost having to show your hand that you're trying for a baby. And what does that mean? Does that mean that they think I'm less committed, that I'm not focused on my career? So what do you hear from people? Because you've got a huge community. Yeah, I wanted to pick on that, Becky, because you talked about career before. I think it's a common fear for many people. But as a solo parent, it's even more of a fear because you are going to become the sole provider for another person if your fertility journey results in you having a child. Going on a fertility journey is very expensive. Having a child is an unknown expense that, you know, people don't know how much it's going to cost. There is a big overwhelm when it comes to finances. Therefore, job security is absolutely critical for somebody who's going through this. So the last thing you want to do is put any idea into anyone's mind that you're not committed and you don't want to be passed over for a promotion. Like many, many of the people in my community are are very career driven and still want to continue to do that. So are very anxious about sharing this. And also feel sometimes they might not want to share because it's private information and you you almost have to share before you want to. But definitely the career side of things and just not wanting any unconscious bias to come in around you not having that job security is, is really critical for my community for sure. Yeah, and that's really important. Thank you for sharing. And, and I think the other element of, of going down the path of solo parenthood and I've got experience as well as donor conception and that comes with its own challenges emotional decisions that you've got to make and that can be really difficult for people as well can't it yeah and I think it's what you said before you're going on your own journey with this and it's not something that's widely talked about and so I think there's just an additional fear that you're working through some of this yourself worrying what other people particularly work colleagues you know your manager at work might think about this it's so many people I was talking to a group of solar parents last night and they all said they felt very confident telling people about their journey but not at work that they specifically like pretty much everybody said I feel confident telling my friends and family even actually strangers I feel confident but I don't feel confident telling work and they can't really even articulate exactly why but there's definitely a fear about sharing this at work and what would you like to see organizations doing then to try and help people I think um, what I love, there was a couple of examples that people have used and some of them I love, I think sharing more diverse stories. So having people talk about their journey. So in my company, I've shared my journey. I've seen some quite high profile people in quite senior roles share that they've become solo parents. I think that's so powerful because people are like, oh, it really, you know, I think sharing more stories from a diverse range of people, I think is really powerful. And I think it's all about dialogue 
it's about um, and starting at the it's not that specific really it's really more a broader conversation about inclusivity openness getting rid of assumptions opening our minds to it you know it really starts at the top and it's quite a big uh, and then seeding down and the, just one critical thing language so just the inclusivity of language it seems small but exactly the point you made Becky you know just saying if you have a partner it's small but it's a powerful change to be more inclusive yeah and that can be so powerful for someone because quite often the first place people will go for support is looking at a policy and if there's a policy there and they don't see themselves represented or reflected in that policy it's probably going to make them less likely to feel comfortable in saying actually this is different for me a hundred percent and worst case scenario that I have seen where there's a policy is where it's referring when it's um, not a medical fertility situation yeah. but because you're having it because of your social circumstances that it compares it to cosmetic surgery that there is still examples where that happens and for me that is just you know soul destroying for somebody who's hoping that they might be supported by a policy and by that structure and actually that just does the exact opposite and you feel very misunderstood and, and that you're being put in a category that's absolutely not where you should be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something we think is really, really important, what you said around getting those stories out there and the diversity in them and making people feel included. And, and we have throughout our e-learning male features from a solo parent perspective, we have lots of different stories of how different people have built their different families. And that's what's so important here. It's knowing that when we're talking about this topic that everyone can feel included and I think as well when we think about alternative paths to parenthood it's not just people thinking oh I'll go down this different route I don't think anyone ever imagines as they're growing up that they will need to use a donor to conceive for example and so that can be a huge thing for people to get their head around and also it's not something you've imagined yourself if you've not been through it you may not even realize that people are going through these monumentous decisions when you're having to choose a donor and all of these other things so I just think it's really important that we raise this and, and talk about it and thank you Mel for sharing your words of wisdom and um, I want to come over to Nicole now so Nicole you went through years of fertility treatment and pregnancy loss before embarking on adoption and, and you're now a mum through adoption. Can you briefly explain the adoption process and how intense that can be? Because I think that's also something that often isn't appreciated in workplaces. Yeah, so it's quite a surreal process after trying to have a baby naturally. You're suddenly taken away from the physical side of it. You've suddenly got reading lists. You're suddenly being asked to volunteer so that you get more experience with children because you have to be able to prove that you're good with children. And you have to write quite extensively around your own life, your relationships, your childhood. And then it's really delved into almost like counselling sessions. You get a social worker comes around on a weekly basis and basically just drills into your life story that you've written to find out about yeah everything you've written what you've learned from these relationships what you would take forwards into your own parenting style yeah it's very different and I think there's a lot that's misunderstood about the process there's as much after you've been approved as there is during the approval process and I would actually say that the hardest bit is the matching and waiting to be matched with a child that is a very again a surreal process almost like dating websites you get profiles of children that you look at and the guilt you feel if you say no for whatever reason 
you kind of think, well, this poor child, you know, they need a home. Why am I saying no? I should just take any child, basically. And depending on how many people have been put through and are approved and how many children are available for adoption, it can take a long time to be matched. Yeah. And the waiting can be hard, can't it, as well? I think I know for you. Yes. Yeah, it's almost an extension of your infertility. It's that endless kind of, is it actually going to happen? You know, are we ever going to feel matched? It can feel very strange to... Because you look at photos of children and it's like looking at someone else's children. They're like, oh, yeah, these are my kids. They're cute, but you don't feel connected to them. So and you start thinking, am I ever going to feel connected to any of these children? It's very weird. So you're making these huge decisions and lots of appointments, lots of kind of conversation, lots of paperwork as well. How did you balance that with work? How did you make it work for you? Well, I was pretty open at work. I told them I was going through the process and then I told them when we were approved. I think one of the things that isn't often considered is the timescale. So as I say, it depends how many children are out there. We were told it would happen within weeks, which obviously doesn't give you a lot of time to prepare your boss to the fact that you might be leaving. So that's why I told him really early because I didn't want it to be a shock. And then as it came to it, when we were approved, actually things had changed and it was taking a lot longer. But it's very uncertain, so you don't know. You might get sent a profile and actually say yes, and then it all snowballs and it happens really quickly. Or you might be waiting. We waited over a year to be matched. So you've got no idea on what the timescales are. Yeah. And you've spoken to me before. And you tell us a bit about that difficult conversation you had with your employer when you actually got to the point of requesting adoption leave. Yeah, so it was so awkward. So because I'd I'd spoken about it so openly, I just assumed that they were aware of what the the policy was, that it's actually very similar to to just maternity leave. You get the the full 52 weeks if you choose. So I hadn't even considered that this would be an unknown. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to my boss and I said that we'd been matched and actually we were going to start introductions, which is when you start to spend time with the children. It's one or two weeks usually. You spend more and more time with them and then they move in. And my boss then just said, well, that's not a really good time because there's a lot of people off on leave. Could you make <laughs> make it a bit, a bit later? Which you can't, obviously. There's no. so many other things at play in this. And the fact that he was wanting more cover when he then said, so how long are you going to take? And I was like, I was thinking the full year. That was a complete shock. Yeah. I think he was thinking it would be maybe three, four weeks. And I think there's an assumption because the children are older that you're not going to need that time because you're not breastfeeding, you're not spending time with a a newborn. But actually, I would say that adopted children often need longer because they are traumatised. Adoption is a trauma. They've been pulled away from their parents, who our oldest was five when birth mum moved out. So she's got a lot of memories, a lot of love, a lot of grief that's going on there. And then they're living with foster carers that, again, they, they learn to trust, they learn to love, and they're pulled away from them. And they suddenly come and live with two people who are complete strangers and they have no sense of permanence, no sense of this is forever. So our youngest was 18 months when she moved in. I thought it would be the easier of the two. She just accepted us as new carers. And it's only, I would say, after about seven months that I feel there's real affection there. We were just carers and she had no sense of us being family. Okay. And every time I hear your story, Nicole, it just amazes me because you've been through the fertility treatment, you went through as a solo parent as well at one point, and and loss, and then now adoption as well. So you've covered so many things. Just finally to finish, what would you like to see within fertility policies and conversations in relation to these alternative paths to parenthood? 
Well, I think a lot of it is being covered already. I think the culture needs to change. People need to feel that it's okay to talk about it. As Mel said, I felt deeply ashamed that I hadn't been able to secure the husband and, and go down the traditional route. So I didn't mention anything at all, which also then meant that when I had my losses, I didn't mention them. And it just felt like it wasn't an environment where that would be an acceptable conversation. So it's great to see that people are talking about it more. I think it needs that support from employers. And the peer support as well, I think, is vital. So you know that you can actually speak to someone or you know that sharing stories, you can see that other people in the organisation have been through similar. And if they also talk about how the organisation supported them, people might realise, oh, actually, they've been through it and the organisation supported them. Yeah, That would be really helpful. It can make such a difference, can't it? And I just think everything you said, a lot of it's education and people don't know what they don't know. And that's what we want to try and help with. So thank you so much to both of you for just shining a light on these alternative paths. And we're going to continue this conversation around alternative paths to parenthood as we we move into another really important topic, which is the LGBTQ plus family building. I'll hand back over to Natalie. Thank you. And we plan to explore this, albeit briefly, because we want to ensure that this important topic of how organisations can usualise, be inclusive of and supportive of LGBTQ plus family building. And the webinars that we deliver internally for organisations go much more in depth. So we are just going to be touching the surface with our panellists. But just to share the fact that 77% of 18 to 34 year olds within this community are now considering or are already parents, which is a 44% increase on their elders. So to talk more, I'm going to welcome Laura Rose, who's the founder of LGBT Mummies and Proud Foundations, which provides education and training, and Wes Johnson-Ellis, co-founder of Two Dads UK, My Surrogacy Journey and The Modern Family Show. Now, Laura is very time poor right now. She's just managed to join us, which we're very grateful for. And I'm going to go straight to you, Laura, just to talk about how you feel that the LGBTQ plus family building conversation is included in the workplace narrative and really what needs to change? I think the fact that our paths are are marred with lots of barriers, microaggressions, general discrimination and the implications that come from those barriers. By the time you get to the point where, you know, you're in the process, you're pregnant or your partner or partner's pregnant and you're going on that path, you need a support network around you. So some people haven't come out at work, they haven't come out sometimes at home, sometimes they're doing it alone or sometimes they're doing it with you know as part of a poly family or co-parenting but they feel that they haven't got a big enough support network so to go into the workplace and know that that can be your safe space is so crucial for so many people in our community and once you've been through all those various implications talking about lack of access to funding you know lack of finances you know it's not financially viable for you you might not have a partner all these other barriers that you go through you know having to stop your medication for transitioning because you want to birth all these different things that you'll go through and then you get to that point and then you enter the workplace that needs to be a safe space so there needs to be really robust and comprehensive and inclusive policies to support you on that journey because a lot of the time you will enter into that space and HR or management don't have real insight or educational training or understanding of what those needs are as an LGBT plus person. So from the top down and throughout, there needs to be a real comprehensive understanding of what kind of support you need, 
your journey, who you are as a person, your identity, your gender, your sexuality. It's not just about, oh, I know you've had IUI. Oh, I know you had IVF. I know what that is. It's what does the journey look like? How are you going to be impacted in your space at work? You know, your emotions, your hormones. And also considering if you're a non-birthing or non-gestational parent, you need support too. And from someone that's been both a birthing and non-birthing parent, the two experiences for me, I've had great positive experiences in my workplace, but I know people that have had really poor ones because they're not the birthing parent. Why do you need to go to an appointment? You're not going through it. Oh, you're the dad. All these kind of microaggressions or assumptions that happen that can really, really impact someone's journey. And it can lead to real, really serious implications. You know, relationships breaking down, a really talented employee leaving the workplace because they'll go somewhere more inclusive. You will lose talent if you don't make that safe space and you don't create an inclusive and understanding space for people. So it's really about having that support, but understanding all the way through the organisation and having that culture of even down to your employees, you know, having these roundtables where you discuss all different communities, all different journeys to say, actually, you know, when you're talking to Sarah and having a cup of tea in the tea room, that you don't ask why she's in a bad mood and why she's crying all the time, because actually Sarah might be going through fertility treatment. Sarah might be in the midst of, you know, a hormone breakdown, which many of us know what it feels like when you're on all these different hormones and different medications. So it's just really important to understand what the journey can look like, but also who we are as a community and create that safe space because without it, you'll lose talent and also it can be really detrimental. And these experiences are the most important that we go through as parents, intended parents. So it needs to be a memorable one and the workplace and your employer can do that for you. Can you just talk a bit about the gaps in the language that is used relating to the LGBTQ plus community? I think when it comes to our community, and Wes will probably agree with me too, you know, when it comes to gay dads or same-sex couples, you know, lesbians, you know, we're more visible in the media, in the public eye. People will assume that that's what most of our community consists of. Actually, no, it doesn't. There are trans, non-binary, genderqueer, genderfluid people that too need support. So a lot of the language does tend to go, oh, okay, well, are you a gay man? Are you a lesbian? And then anything outside of that remit, you know, there's not real any understanding or support so looking at additive language or directive language like your care your journey how can we support you or additive women and birthing people mums and dads and parents you know additive language may be a bit longer it may be a bit uglier but it means that all people are included so it's really really important that organizations take the time to review their policies their frameworks and say actually let's ensure that all people and there's a huge piece of intersectionality around that of not just being lgbt plus you may have disabilities or additional needs you may also be of color you may also be from another religious community these are all things that need to be looked at so looking at the culture of your space your demographic but also making sure that there's space for other people to enter it and be understood being understood is so so crucial in this journey thank you lauren and as you can tell there is so much to this conversation and that's why we've been making this point again and again that we are just touching the surface and i'm gonna ask you wes just to talk a bit about we've experienced working alongside intended parents with my surrogacy journey your organization a total absence of recognition and guidance around surrogacy support can you talk about what you see that's missing when it comes to the conversations in the workplace 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for having me on the session today. It's really interesting to hear everyone, all of the other speakers' points of view as well. But I think from my point of view, from a surrogacy point of view, surrogacy is very misunderstood and people really generally don't understand the components of surrogacy. So I think some of the things that I'd like to see people recognise, particularly from a HR professional point of view, is, is that they actually understand what surrogacy is and they also understand what surrogacy isn't because there's a significant difference. And and if you understand the journey that intended parents or an intended parent has gone through, then you're more likely to be more receptive and be able to support them in a much better way. I also think that it's about having policies that consider surrogacy and the pathways that people take and the recognition that there is just not a one size that fits all you know particularly if you look at our heterosexual people going through surrogacy versus our same-sex couples they're coming at surrogacy from a very very different place often those our heterosexual people they're coming at it from loss multiple loss and often it's the end of the road for them so it's their last chance to help them create a family so that needs managing in that sensitive way where Whereas often same-sex male couples and female couples, they're coming at it because they know that they've always going to need to have uh, some assistance to create their family and are often in a very different mindset and very excited about their journey. So that also needs a very different approach to it. And I think it's always about as well is about the intended parents we deal with, often they're having to help their HR professionals create the policy for them, when actually how nice would it be if you go to your HR department, they already have a policy that can help you navigate through. You're always often dealing with lots of different components for the surrogacy journey you don't want another component like having to train your HR team about the support you need for your journey. So it's it's about, for me, it's about the HR team having a proactive approach to inclusion in their policy rather than having to react when someone's at the point of, I'm here, I'm about to have a baby, how can you support me? Because we all know that those policy changes don't happen overnight and often they need to go through a process of governance to make them fit for purpose. So it's about being proactive and making sure that that is there right from the start. And also it's about language. I know everyone, uh, all of our panelists already have spoke about language, but particularly for a same-sex couple, what we often find is that people are asked really invasive questions that people think it's okay to ask. So typically, a same-sex couple going through a surrogacy journey, one of them will be biolinked to the child and the other one won't be. Now, that's already quite a challenging topic for a couple to navigate through and to manage in their own time. But then what you often find is people think it's okay to ask someone whose sperm was used and often that's quite a topic that people want to keep to themselves. It's a very personal thing. But, you know, the types of conversation, the types of questions that get asked, you typically, if let's flip this, if there was a heterosexual couple going through surrogacy, there's no way on earth you would ask whose sperm was used. You would assume that it was the couple who used their gametes to create embryos. Why is that any different for a, a same-sex couple? Why are you interested whose sperm was used? What's it going to do to you when you know the answer to that question? So my advice there would be only ask what you need to know and don't ask questions. That's not really going to impact the information that you give those intended parents who are navigating through that journey. Such valid points. And hopefully the fact that we've got so many people on this call, we are having that proactive approach to what you just described, you know, with the, the hopes that we have for policies and the development of them. Whereas just finally, for people that aren't 
aware of what we've just talked about in terms of surrogacy and you know we do try to fill the gaps don't we and it's not meant with malice but sometimes it's just because that's just what's said and you know highlighting the sensitivities around it is so key here but what would you like to see on the inclusion agenda in the workplace in terms of these conversations to family building sure i mean just before i ask that question i'm a dad to two kids with surrogacy you know my kids have changed my life and we were supported and helped by an amazing woman who helped us create our family but one of the things that i want to really is surrogacy is absolutely possible it's helping people change their lives up and down the country for one of our organizations, we're helping over, over 100 sets of intended parents meet surrogates and create their family. So first of all, surrogacy is legal, it's possible, and it's thriving in the UK. That There are lots of options outside of the UK as well, but it's absolutely possible in the UK. Surrogacy is changing people's lives, intended parents, their wider family, but also the surrogate and the surrogate's family. They're doing amazing things that is you know, they're witnessing the, the gift that they're giving to people and helping them change their lives. These are monumental life-changing decisions that they made and they're absolutely changing people's lives. Becky, I know you mentioned this earlier on, but you don't know what you don't know. And I use this often with intended parents. So, you know, get the advice, get the information that you need to help you succeed on a journey. But that would also be true to HR professionals. If you don't know information about how you're going to support the people in your organization who potentially are going through surrogacy, then get that support, speak to the right people to help you. I've worked with intended parents who have been dealing with the HR professionals who just do what they think is the right thing to do. And often they just make it worse. You know, they're offending people and also they're breaching the Equalities Act. So let's just get the right information so that you can then support people in the right way. We're here to help. And then surrogacy, takes time it's not a sprint it can't be done very quickly unless you want to do surrogacy in the us but that costs a lot of money it does take time and you have to have patience and there are key milestones within that journey and there are key milestones that are going to affect employees in a different way you know particularly with embryo creation we've talked a lot about fertility treatment that embryo creation choosing a donor becky i know something that you particularly mentioned these some of these are life-changing decisions and they need to be given the time and the ability to make those decisions without any kind of stress or any further anxiety and i think i talked about it earlier you know, surrogates are amazing in the uk surrogacy is altruistic it's not commercial like in the us and it has to be done for what's deemed reasonable expenses so a lot of these women you know they go through a massive amount of challenging times when being a surrogate and no one gets paid for it they can only claim reasonable expenses so it takes a very certain type of person to be a surrogate and when you do find them they are amazing people and ultimately they are helping to increase or start a family for people and are doing amazing work and i just want to raise the profile of surrogacy nationally because there are more amazing women out there that could help more amazing intended parents become parents so there was a lot there of course laura rose talking about the impact on same-sex relationships her brilliant organization lgbt mummies and Wes, one half of my surrogacy journey and two dads. And I want to just focus in on the work that you're doing with my surrogacy journey because you alluded to it at the start of the chat. I've witnessed the hours that you're pouring into these conversations because you're supporting IPs with yeah. what they're finding in terms of policies at work 
are there some commonalities that you're finding in what people are coming to you with? Yeah, absolutely. There's a massive gap of of that language that we talked about and that Wes has mentioned in terms of people don't don't view adoption as surrogacy as well. And there's that traditional view of, of adoption that I said at the beginning. And, you know, Laura talked about it as well. She talks about, you know, how being understood is essential. And, and that's kind of the narrative that Wes gives as well. And that it isn't the same as it's always been. It's not a man, a woman and 2.4 children. This this social makeup isn't in existence anymore. The, the world's moved on considerably and there are more and more people. And, you know, please not let's not um, forget that it's not just male single sex couples that are going through surrogacy women may not be able to carry their own child for medical reasons for you know reasons that they might have had a hysterectomy you know there are all different areas that we need to examine and actually understand but if those people aren't contained in that work conversation they're being excluded in actual fact and that that is a discriminatory act we also obviously heard from Mel talking about the solar route to parenthood yeah. and Nicole talking about her experience of failed fertility treatment and then moving on to adoption. Really poignant points raised pretty much what you've just summarized there about that inclusive language, mm. the fears from a solo parent point of view about being that sole breadwinner and the assumptions made and all that goes with that. And then as Nicole talked about, that just real gaps of understanding of how the process works and we appreciate people don't know this stuff we always say mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know that's what we're here to educate on that's why we're having this conversation what do you see as a real key change that needs to happen aside from language we titled this diversity and inclusion didn't we and, and actually there's such a whole range of conversations that fit under that very very broad umbrella and there's so many things and so many nuances that fit under it as well especially in the world of work so if you think about baby boomers compared to millennials, there's a very different view about what a worker or an employee needs from their business. And I think if we don't flex with society and we don't flex with the needs of our people, we're not going to be that attractive employer of choice and we're not going to get to have any return on investment of our diversity and inclusion strategy or our agenda. And we know that both inclusion and diversity are very commonly used words but I think people don't really try and understand what that means and and usually it's around ethnicity or gender there's so many layers underneath that that we need to explore and fertility is definitely a huge one for us but we need to look at them as having that agenda as a business outcome a positive business outcome so you know to increase teamwork to increase professional growth to bring different perspectives to give greater understanding of different challenges that your workforce may be challenging and you know all that translates into bottom line profit I think that's the bit that people are actually not making that dotted line going across it it just feels like it's a we'll do this but I don't know what the outcome is or what the positivity about it is and I think that that's where businesses need to get a little bit savvy about thinking differently and thinking if I include all these people and listen and understand because those are the two key things that we need to do that'll make the world a difference. I love talking to you about this stuff because my eyes have been totally opened about how far reaching this conversation really goes because I've been learning you know I'm not an HR professional like yourself and and Becky and the three of us come to the table with different strengths I'm the one with the microphone in front of my mouth (laughs) and Um, you do it marvelously (laughs) but I think it's so interesting 
to break it down like you've just done for businesses to really understand all these moving parts. And I love there was a few like hand actions that don't portray that well into a podcast, but about about the kind of the the, the wave like movement or the like navigating way through the sea almost of, of mm. what can feel like this huge ocean um, of issues. I don't know if it's the right thing for us to call it issues or scenarios or experiences, however, however we want to term them. Yeah. But that ultimately, if you're going to approach one have that open mind to approach them all it's like a suite yeah. isn't it a suite it, of things it is and it's do you know what this is about talking to the people who work in your organization never assume and never think you understand and know everything so you know we had it at the fertility show didn't we earlier this year where we were faced with some conversations that baffled all three of us and we were just like we would never we would never have considered that situation but we're learning equally in the space as well and and I think that's what makes us rich in terms of knowledge that we can actually say yeah I've come across that scenario before but there's so many more out there that we're not aware of but we're not going to be aware of them until we ask the question or we or we maintain that curiosity that we need to go yeah let's let's have a talk about that I don't quite understand it it's that it's that need to learn and that desire to learn and understand and that's exactly what we're on a mission to do at Fertility Matters at Work. And if you feel that you're learning all the time from the F word at work, do let us know. We'd love you to rate and review this podcast, subscribe and share it. Ultimately, if you'd also like to continue this conversation with us and hear more of Claire's wisdom, you must get in touch with us. The website is at fertilitymattersatwork.com and also in the show notes for this episode I'm going to link to a brilliant demo that we did showing our membership package also how you can get in touch with us so we hope we can speak again and do if you've got the time it doesn't have to be today it can be tomorrow listen to part three if you've not listened to part one go back and listen to that too because I do think you'll find a lot to think about on this DNI conversation do follow us on our socials at Fertility Matters at Work on Instagram and LinkedIn. It's where we share the free events that we have, as well as survey findings and lots of interesting conversations from our community. We're at Fert Matters Work on Twitter. Plus, we've got loads of free resources at fertilitymattersatwork.com. If from what we've shared with you, you feel ready to talk more about how your organisation can become fertility friendly, do book a call via the website link. It will be great to hear from you. 